Good morning, Renaissance. Uh, my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors uh, here at Renaissance. Hey, be careful about what you say that you'll never do or who you say that you'll never become. Uh, years ago, I've always had a problem whenever I would meet that guy. And I don't know if you've ever met a guy, you're like, yeah, that's that guy. That guy is a guy who used to be a really normal person and had interesting things to talk about and followed conversations. And then they have children. And uh, every conversation, no matter what happens, somehow goes back to them and their kids and something that their kids are, are doing. Uh, years ago, I was talking to a colleague, and we were talking about like, the World Cup. And he was like, yeah, you know, this actually reminds me of my uh, son, his middle school soccer team, and he starts showing us videos. And I'm like, Carl, your kid is not that good, bro. I'm really sorry. to." I thought it. I wanted to say it, but I didn't. I don't have that much courage. And I was looking at this guy, just judging him completely, like, how do you turn into that guy? May 5th, 2015 happened. Uh, my son was born, and seven seconds after he was born, I felt something wash over me, uh, and I knew I was in the sunken place, and I had become <laughs> that guy. Uh, about 10 hours after he was born, I went to the store, and... Uh, I uh, got to the store, and the guy was like, yeah, well, that'd be 43.28. I was like, oh, that's nothing. And he was like, oh, you must be rich. I was like, no, actually, you know, just my son was born, and <laughs> we're going to celebrate with the family. And he was like, okay, sir, well, it's 43.28. Is it card or cash? And I was like, well, since you asked, and I took out my phone and showed this dude <laughs> an entire slideshow. And while it was happening, I heard a voice. I heard a voice from heaven say, it happened. You are now that guy, and it's no coming back from, from that. Uh, and the worst thing about being that guy is once you become that guy, you don't even care anymore. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. You know you're that guy. You know you're annoying, and it doesn't even matter. It's, it's a pretty great feeling. <laughs> hey, do you want to know the best way for you and I to become sworn enemies? You can do anything to me that you want. You can say something crazy about me. Uh, you can do something to me. I can take a punch, uh, and I can forgive you for that. But if you did something to my kid, oof, it would be very difficult for me to forgive that. And you don't even have to do anything uh, aggressively toward him. If you just, like, disregarded him when he needed something, and I knew that you were there, and you didn't do anything, it wouldn't matter what you came up to me and said. Uh, if, if Jameson were on the stairs and about to fall and you just kind of like stepped over him and came up to me with all the compliments in the world that, hey, this is the best church on the planet. I've never seen a better run church and you're the, the best pastor this world has ever known. You could fill my head with all the compliments that you can think of and none of it would mean anything. Uh, Jameson is the one who's, he bears my image and if you're not right with the one that bears my image, you're definitely not going to be right with me. Now, a few weeks ago, we mentioned a, a theological principle called Imago Dei. And Imago Dei basically means the image of God. And it's a Latin phrase that theologians use to describe the phenomenon that every single person, simply for the fact that they are born and they have an existence, they were made in the image of God. Now, let me ask you a question. It's a big question, and I want you to sit and think about it for a second. What is God like? Does God care about the ones who bear his image? What if you had all of the praises in the world for God? And what if you had the nicest things in the world to say about God? And what if you had a lot of great things going on in your life, 
but you disregarded some of the ones whose image, who bear God's image. Uh, Would God just forget the way you disregard or treat those who bear his image because you're giving him a lot of praises and compliments and you give money to the church or you serve somewhere or someone else? Uh, There's a scripture in Isaiah 58, which gets to the heart of this, um, and it shows what God means by the fact that we are all image bearers of the divine. Uh, God was talking to the nation of Israel, and uh, these people had gone on a fast, and a fast is when people uh, don't eat intentionally to uh, seek after God, that their, their hearts are so intended on seeking after God that they don't even eat. They don't want anything to get into the way of them and God. And scripture says in Isaiah 58 that these people had been going back and forth to the temple day after day, praying and fasting and doing all these different things. And then they bring up a complaint to God saying, God, we've been praying and we've been fasting and we've been doing all of these things, yet our prayers are not answered. We've done all of this religious activity and yet you haven't heard our prayers. We fasted for you and you don't even uh, sound like you, you want us to do any of this stuff for you. And God responds to them and says this, isn't this the fast that I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see them, and to ignore not your own flesh and blood. In essence, this is what God is saying. Isn't what I really want from you is to notice and to bless those who were made in my image. All of the compliments in the world don't mean much if you and I disregard people. Now, here's where we see the other side of the Imago Dei. God not only created me and you uh, in his image, which means that you and I have this intrinsic amazing value, which, side note, is the greatest news in the world for people who think that there's nothing good about yourselves. For the people who think, man, I don't have anything good going on for me, you were created in God's image. You were created in God's likeness, and there is something infinitely redeemable about every single person in this room. I love watching the uh, the shows on um, the History Channel, the shows about all of the old stuff that gets restored, and every now and then someone will bring in uh, some, like this old Coca-Cola machine that's like mad dirty and dusty, and then the, the people will just salivate over it. They can't wait to get to it because they're like, do you know what you have? Do you know how much this machine would be worth if we restored it? Here's what the Imago Day says, that there is something inside of you that we would be crazy to throw you away. There is something infinitely redeemable about every single person. Now, the other side of the Imago Day is um, not just that we were born in God's image, but also we were created after his likeness. In Genesis 1 and 26, it says, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's likeness? It means that you don't just, it, it means that you and I reflect God's activity in this earth, that you, are, you and I are God's representatives in the earth, that you and I are to act as if we were God's. Uh, it's the same way, um, I can't wait till I do this. My son is two now. Once he gets a little bit older and he can understand logic, before we go into any store, I'm going to say, listen, when you get into this store, I don't want you acting a fool and embarrassing me. When we get in here, you ain't getting no toys, no candy, you ain't getting none of that. Go into the store, be quiet, and we will leave. Everybody will leave unbeaten. 
unspanked, unspanked. <laughs> As my image bearer, he has an obligation to reflect me. What he does reflects me. And I am very concerned about what he does that reflects me and how he behaves. So to be created in God's likeness means that God has created you and me in such a way that you and I would do as God does. Uh, There's a dramatic turn in scripture where Jesus is talking to these religious leaders and they try to catch Jesus in a trap. And one religious leader lobs out a question. He says, Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, This is one of the few times in Scripture where I wish Jesus would have given a different response. Jesus knew that this man was trying to trick him, and there were really two options that the man was thinking of. Uh, Every Jewish person hated paying taxes because they were paying taxes to their Roman oppressors. So if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, then Jesus is saying, yo, go with the status quo, give money to the enemy. But if Jesus said no, he'd be advocating for lawlessness and advocating for people, people to break the law. Uh, So Jesus, in a brilliant move, says, yo, give me a coin. Whose inscription is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. He said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now, this man wasn't asking genuine questions, because had he really wanted to know, he would have asked a second follow-up question, which is, Jesus, well, what is God's? Jesus said, well, look at you. Look at me. Look at everyone around here. Whose images are, are on these people? To which Jesus would have said, good, now give God you. Imago Dei has two parts to it. One, that we are created in God's image. But the second part is that you and I were created in God's image to reflect his likeness. That you and I will be God's agents, God's representatives in the world. So then the million dollar question becomes, what is God like? Uh, Better stated, what does it look like to reflect God? Now, over and over again in Scripture, you see these amazing descriptions of who uh, God is, what God really is. And I don't know that there's a more important question that you can ever answer than this, is who is God and what is God like? To answer that question then fills in the gaps of what you and I should be like. Uh, Scripture in Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5, it says that God is a father to the fatherless, uh, a defender of widows. Now, this is really important that uh, God says this is who he is uh, and how God wants to be introduced, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. In ancient Hebrew, uh, men were the only people who could make money. It was a deeply patriarchal society. Uh, So if you were a a fatherless child, you had no one, no one that can make any money for you. Equally true, if you were a widow, if your husband died, you were equally out of luck uh, because you couldn't work yourself and make money. And here we see that the God of the Bible aligns himself with the most vulnerable in society. The ones who could not produce on their own. This is who God chooses to identify himself with. The one who has nothing that they can give to society. This is the one that God not just tolerates, not just accepts. This is the one that God wants to be identified with. Uh, There's a Sri Lankan uh, theologian. Uh, His name is Vinath Ramachandra, and he calls this scandalous justice. He writes that in virtually every ancient culture of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society, the kings and priests and military captains, but never the outcasts. To oppose the leaders of society was then really to oppose the gods. 
But here comes a God of Scripture, and it's not high-ranking men that God chooses to identify himself with. It is the lowliest. It is the one lowest on a totem pole that cannot do anything for himself. Now, if this is who God is, what if we disregarded those who God identifies with? Is it something that you and I could have a faith that uh, is about proclamation and we believe the right things and we say the right things, but it never makes it its way to our hands and to our feet to actually reflect uh, the way that God reflects in this world? God calls on us to reflect his activity here on the earth and to not do it is a really, really serious thing. Now, we've been going through our values here as a church, and quite frankly, we think that our values are God's values, Um, and we want to be the type of church that reflects what God is doing, and it would be a horrible thing if our church was, was, didn't matter how amazing the singing or the worship was, it didn't matter how tight-knit and cool the community was, if we weren't loving the people that God told us to love, if we didn't notice people. If nobody was disregarded because you and I were God's agents in this world, that we reflected God, the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows, the one who took up the cause for the least and the last, the the one who was the most unnoticed in this society. Now, this has been our, our value because, quite frankly, we're answering the question, what is Renaissance here for? And justice is what we are here for. Now, justice has a much bigger definition than what we understand it in Western terminology. In Western terms, it's if you commit a crime, justice means that you pay the time. Uh, The Bible gives it a much different understanding. The Bible gives it a a much different picture of what justice is, and it's setting things the way they ought to be. Now, I want to take a beeline to today's scripture. It comes from the, the Gospel of Matthew in the 25th chapter, and it is one of the more jarring scriptures in, in all of the Bible. It is not one that when you read it, you're, it, you're going to feel like someone is tickling your underarms. This ain't going to be the one that makes you feel good from, from the outset, but it is incredibly important, and I want us to kind of sit in the tension of this a little bit. Um, and quite honestly, even in preparing for today's message, it's, uh, it's deeply bothered me, mainly because I see how much I'm not doing with this. So I am, I'm one of your equals today, and don't let this stage fool you. Um, I I have a far way to go with this as well. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verses 31 through 46. And it's Jesus talking. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, my image bearers, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, Jesus gives us some pretty jarring language here that are sure to unsettle anyone who thinks. And Jesus is here talking about judgment day. And the criteria he uses is, hey, I was hungry and you didn't do anything for me. You stepped right over me. That your version of faith was giving God all of these compliments while you were stepping over and disregarding his image bearers. And they say, Jesus, whoa, 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 whoa. When did I see you sick or in prison or, or hungry or thirsty? Like, when did I see you do that? I would have never done that to you. And he tells them the sharp, the sharp and, and really difficult truth. Whatever you didn't do for the least of these, my image bearers, those who bear God's image, you did not do it for me. Now, essentially what Jesus is saying is this. If you don't love the people in need right in front of your face, if you don't love them, then no matter what you say, you really don't love me. If you tell me, Jordan, I love you as a friend, you're, you're so dear to me, you're the greatest this in the world, and yet you step over my image bearer, you really don't love me the way that you say you think you do. Now, God identifies with those who are in need, and if God's character in, includes a zeal for justice that leads him to love and, to, and leads his closest involvement with those who are weak, then the question then becomes, what should God's people be like. Now, a deep social conscience where you and I are deeply invested in other people, those made in God's image, is the grand symptom of faith. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's not that caring for people makes you right with God. That's certainly not what Jesus is saying. But if you have a real living faith where you have been moved by the grace of God that has operated in your life to not desire to not give that out to someone else is a sign that you have never really received God in the first place. God says, if you think you have a real connection with me and yet you're really connected to me and that you've humbled yourself and that you found me, but you don't care about people who are in need, then you really haven't. Now, but that brings us to the real question. Is the answer that you should leave here today, go to uh, Dwayne Reed, buy a bunch of water bottles and make sure you're just like, you know, throwing them out at anybody who might be thirsty, just pegging them at people in a train station just lobbing out water bottles to anybody. You got cheeses in your bag for anybody who's hungry. Um, I don't think it means that you and I should be neurotic, uh, but what Jesus was drawing on here was this biblical principle called shalom. Uh, now, shalom, basically, as we understand it, is this word called peace, but it meant much more to Jesus as he's uh, given this description. Shalom, basically, is that the world is restored to how things ought to be. Now, the best way I know how to describe this is if I were to put a thousand threads on this table and just lay them on top of each other, it wouldn't create a fabric or a rug or anything like that. In order for there to be a rug or a fabric, you have to interconnect these, uh, these individual um, strands in with another, over, under, and through, so that it becomes something together. And this is what the principle of shalom is. And this is why Jesus is so harsh on people um, that have no concern for others, that want to sit on top of the pile. He's saying this. Uh, the biblical principle of shalom is that you and I are all interconnected. 
And for us to not care about other image bearers is a reflection of the way that you and I actually see God. Uh, A theologian by the name of Neil Plantinga describes it like this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed all under the arc of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, the human body is often used as an analogy for how the body of Christ forms, and um, there's an there's a interconnectedness in how your body forms. So if your body is experiencing physical shalom, physical wholeness, that means every part of the body is working well together. Uh, but if you had something like cancer, that means you have one rogue cell which has determined itself to multiply, disregarding the, the, rest, of your, the rest of the 99% of your body. And that going rogue will actually cause an unraveling of physical shalom or physical wholeness and physical health, and it leads to bad things. Now, when I say this, uh, we talk about justice, we talk about, you know, loving people. It's not something that people disagree with. Nobody in here would say, I don't don't agree with that at all. We shouldn't be nice to people. We shouldn't care for those. Uh, A couple weeks ago, after the hurricane hit Houston, uh, there was a, a pastor of a mega church in Houston that their church basically was alleged to have closed the doors when people were in need, and everybody in the whole world were like, yo, this is like a terrible thing. How dare you claim to have a relationship with God, but when people are right in need, right in front of you, you don't help them. Anybody can see that. I think we all agree that it's a good thing to help those who are in need, but here's a question uh, that would reflect you and I becoming actual image bearers of God, reflecting God's love, is that have you and I interconnected our lives in such a way that when others around us hurt, we hurt. My brother tore his ACL about 15 years ago, and um, as soon as he tore his knee uh, and did his rehab and all that other stuff, eventually his other knee started to degrade, and now both of his knees are messed up. There's an interconnectedness in how your knees work together. Since one was hurt, the other one had to overcompensate to take up for the one that was already hurting. And now both of his knees are messed up, and he's going to have to get a surgery at some point. Jared, I'm sorry for that. Um, You're getting old. In Scripture, when it talks about us serving those, it's talking about not your keyboard courage on social media, Not the amount of likes or retweets or what we say or scream from the mountaintops about our social positions, but have we lived our lives in such a way that we are willing to disadvantage ourselves for the thriving of someone else? Take it right home to your front door. Does your bank account or the way you spend your time represent a disadvantage in a way? Uh, Have you disadvantaged yourself physically or financially or in your time to bless someone else? Here's what Jesus is saying. It's a very serious thing that he doesn't want us to think that we can live a life where we only think about ourselves and we don't see the interconnectedness of people that we can step over God's image bearers and still be right with God. God forbid. Now, the question then becomes, what will make you actually be a person who does justice? So right now, scale of one to 10, how guilty are we feeling? 37, right? 37? Uh, no, that's how I feel normally. But hey, it's not going to be guilt that makes you become a person who does justice. And if you're feeling guilty right now, I'm going to take the guilt off of your shoulders right now. I, I don't want you leaving with that. Guilt is a great short-term motivator, but it's a terrible thing that you can use to actually change your life. Now, essentially, 
the problem is for me, and I'll just fall on a sword here. The problem for me is that I, I often wonder if I do this for someone else, then will I have enough for myself? And or alternatively, I just really don't know this, or I just really can't identify myself with someone else who is struggling because I, I'm feeling myself and I think that I got it all made on my on my own. Now here's what scripture tells us about me and you that the, the grand uh, 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 answer to our problems of, of our stinginess and our unwillingness to really want to get ingrained in the lives of others is that you and I, if we're really honest, we can't identify with those people. Those people. We've separated ourselves into classes of us and them. And uh, to a certain degree, we cannot identify powerfully in such a way that you and I would be willing to act in their benefit for their interest. Now, there's a scripture here in verse 34 which gets at the heart of why um, you and I could be people who are more sacrificial in the way we live, and it could be something that actually motivates you, and it's way, 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 way better than, than guilt, and it's the gospel. Verse 34, Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, this is really important. Jesus says that his followers receive an inheritance, not a paycheck. These are two very different concepts. Jesus' followers, those who place their faith in Jesus, you get an inheritance, not a paycheck. And it's a very clear word why Jesus uses that word inheritance. So let me explain it like this. Uh, a few months ago, my grandmother passed away, and she left for my mom and my aunt and my uncle an inheritance. And you know what that inheritance was? For all of the work that she did, they got a financial windfall. For all of the work that she did since she was 18 years old, grinding it, they got money and in, in, in houses and all in land for something that they never have worked for themselves. This is what the gospel is, and this is why they call it the good news, and don't let, ever let anybody tell you anything different. It's that Jesus Christ himself went to the cross and has left us the inheritance of righteousness. That he became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. And it is absolutely not that what you have done makes you right with God. It is quite the opposite, that Jesus leaves for his followers an inheritance. That for those who place their faith in him, Jesus makes us right with God. Now, what does that all have to do with justice? You and I can't identify oftentimes without the gospel, with people who we may not be able to share a common experience with, but the gospel says that you were hungry, and Jesus Christ had to give his body so that you and I could receive food, so that you were thirsty, and Jesus Christ had to break his body and spill his blood so that you and I could drink from there. He said that you and I were naked, and Jesus Christ went to the cross to purchase uh, uh, the garment of righteousness. He said you and I were in prison, And Jesus Christ went down into the cells of hell and purchased our ransom with his own blood. Now, it is when you and I see ourselves naked and thirsty and hungry and in prison without Jesus that you and I would be able to identify with everyone, even those who are experiencing extreme need at the time. That once upon a time, you had nothing that you can contribute in Jesus Christ because of his great love and his great mercy for us, even though he owed you absolutely nothing God gave you everything in Jesus. And it's only the gospel that will actually motivate you to live a different life. I've said this story before, but my dad grew up really poor. And um, he grew up in the tenements in Buffalo. And I remember him telling stories about how he would miss school as a kid uh, because he was getting sick all the time uh, because they didn't even have, like, uh, in Buffalo, it's so cold. And they didn't even have adequate 
doors and windows, and it was always so drafty in his apartments. And there was a time that he was bit by rodents, and he's like a little kid being just sick from just the terrible living that he was living in. And growing up, my grandmother was a sharecropper in Memphis before she moved to Buffalo, and she made her living cleaning up after people, and she didn't make a lot of money. She never really had a degree, any degrees. She could barely write her own name. And my dad only had two pairs of pants and two shirts to his name. And when he would go outside, you know, just terrible shoes and terrible sneakers, and he would just get teased all the time by the kids for just being so poor. Growing up, uh, my dad never let me and my brother uh, lack anything, and that's probably why I'm a sneakerhead now. My dad always hooked us up with, with, with nice sneakers. And it wasn't just us. Uh, my dad would hook, hook the whole hood up with sneakers. Seriously, like this dude would like, go to the, to the sneaker store, and we, he was buying the whole hood sneakers. And it wasn't because he was particularly a nice guy or a rich guy. He knew what it felt like to get teased. He knew what it looked like and what it felt like to have nothing. And he knew, he can identify. It wasn't an other category. It was him that he saw when he decided to make those purchases and run up his credit card. The gospel is what humbles us and also simultaneously relieves us of any fear that says, that allows us to see ourselves in other people that minus Jesus, take Jesus out of your life. It is we who are hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison. And it is Jesus Christ and his great mercy for us that extends to us this amazing grace. And it's only going to be that that actually changes our hearts and allows us to truly love people, to truly reflect like God wants us to reflect. Now, as a church, we've had a, a concerted effort together to want to make sure that all of us are taking small steps in that direction. And I want to bring up some friends from uh, Hope for New York and uh, Young Life to talk a little bit about uh, what it looks like for you guys to get involved with that and for us to get involved with the church. Give it up for Pete and my boy Wendell. So this is Peter Ong from Hope for New York, and we have a partnership. Come on over here, Pete. Um, we're just gonna, is this awkward if we do like this the entire time? This no? is a very weird optic. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, so Pete is uh, a representative from Hope for New York, and we have been an official partner with Hope for New York, and there's a couple organizations that we're doing stuff, but Pete, tell us a little bit about your aim for us at, at Renaissance Church. Well, first I want to say happy birthday, Renaissance, for your third year. Uh, I'm the director of church and community engagement, and when we first started partnering with Renaissance, it brought me a lot of joy, partly because I love Jordan and Jessica, but I also respect them. Um, very rarely do you love someone and respect them, um, but when you respect and love someone, um, it's a profound opportunity. So when I came on staff and knowing that I have an opportunity to work with Jordan and Jessica, it brought me great joy. Uh, I love and respect Renaissance because of what you represent in the community and how committed you are to the school, the young people, and also of all of Harlem. And uh, one of the Instagrams that really moved me almost to the, the brink of tears was the Instagram of these men welcoming children into this school. And, um, and I remember seeing that and saying, this is why I love and respect this church and the leadership that is driving it. So part of our partnership as Hope for New York is that, as you know, we've been around for 25 years, and our heart is to, again, bring dignity to a city where we see all of the New Yorkers uh, experience flourishing, both economic, spiritual, and emotional. 
So we see one of the key ways of doing that is partnering with churches to connect them to nonprofit affiliates around the city. And today we have uh, several nonprofits that we have affiliations with, and we want to engage with you because we believe that proximity with those who are the least of these will bring some transformation, not only for those that you're serving, but for yourself. I love and respect Renaissance because I was an immigrant. I came here when I was four years old as a refugee from China with $50 to our family. And to have ministries like yours to welcome me and to be able to provide is really key. So there's five ministries that I want to just point out for you guys to consider. We identified five that are in the neighborhood because we know that you love Harlem, but we also know that you love the city. So there's opportunities there, but I want to just point out a few. We have a partnership with Prison Fellowship. And Prison Fellowship, as you know, is a ministry that goes into those incarcerated. And we have partnered with Prison Fellowship to do something with Rikers. And we have Rikers Program and Academy there, as well as a transition program for them to re-enter for both women and men. So really excited in January we'll be able to have women and be able to partner with them to get them engaged. We also have another ministry called the Bowery Mission Women's Center, where we come alongside these women, and they're in this kind of transition recovery program. They moved from uh, their circumstances of homelessness. Now they're trying to get empowered, and then now they're trying to move and find a job, and we're there to help work with them. And one of the programs, I remember meeting one at an event, and these two women were just like there, and I was like, hey, hi, my name is Peter from Hope for New York. And their eyes lit up. They're like, Hope for New York? We love you guys. And I said, what do we do? Why do you love us? And she's like, you guys send these women every single Saturday, and all they do is just walk around the neighborhood in Harlem and just show them around, just giving them presents and proximity. And then we also have another ministry called Safe Families, which we work with those who are families in crisis. They're about to get into foster care, and we're saying, no, we don't want these kids going to foster care. So we're going to intervene and provide resources for the family so that we can keep them from foster care. So those are some of the ministries. I also have Young Life, which this brother will be sharing, and again, to work with young people in the, in the neighborhood to be able to engage with them to provide a place for them because one of the most single accessible groups in all the city is young people. When I was a church planter, that's why I love Jordan so much because I have a heart of a church planter as well. And uh, secretly, I wanted to be Jordan, the Asian version of Jordan. Um, but I can't afford his lifestyle. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I can't afford, and I just look like I'm going through midlife crisis. But anyhow... Uh, young Life, what am I, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Young Life um, is another ministry and my brother's going to share here, so thank you very much. Hey, so, yes, give it up for Pete. Uh, tomorrow we're sending out an email to everybody with uh, specific links for how you can sign up uh, for each organization. And right after service, Pete and Whitney are going to be at a table with a bunch of balloons. You can't miss it. Uh, and you can go and sign your name up for more information, and they'll reach out to you specifically how you can get involved. Um, man, we also got my boy Wendell Wilson up on the stage. Um, and Wendell has a different experience uh, also as a Young Life kid. So there's the, the, the adult side, and there's also the, the kid who actually was able to receive stuff from people, love from people. So what was that like growing up, Wendell? Um, so... I am actually a product of this neighborhood. I grew up down the block on 119th and Morningside. I, I come from a, a hard beginning, I would say. Um, grew up in a single-parent household with my mom. 
um, who, who worked very hard to support um, my family. Uh, but as a young kid, you never understand absence. And I decided that in order to get attention or things I would lack, I would get it from the streets. Um, and so a lot of the older dudes in the neighborhood became kind of my role models and the guys that I look for. And I basically, anything you could think of that you can do to get in trouble or to be, to be in a position to run from police or anything, I've done it. Um, to a point where I didn't graduate high school. Um, while all my friends were in school doing what they had to be, I was roaming the streets um, and trying to find ways to provide for myself. Um, and my life was just in a spiral, honestly. Um, I didn't know what was next in my life. I didn't know where I would go, what I would do, if I even cared about a high school diploma or anything. And then I remember um, actually in the midst of just working these odd jobs, meeting a guy named Aswan who came alongside me um, and just cared for me. He, gave, he invested a bunch of time into me. Um, he loved me. He was the first guy that actually had expectations for my life. Like, he made me think about, like, you can do something better with yourself um, instead of just walking around the street. And, yeah, thank you for that ass. Um, and so, uh, I just remember at a certain point in my life, I grew I was in, the, in this stage of adolescence trying to figure out what do I want to do next. And I just remembered how Aswan reached me and I wanted to reach my friends or other kids in my neighborhood that I had seen growing up that I had definitely wanted to reach out to and kind of be almost like the Aswan who represented Christ for me in a way that I had never seen before. Um, and so that's what I get the privilege to do now. Yes, give it up. Amazing. So you're no longer 18. You're a grown man. And you still have your hair and you're a grown man. But what does... Uh, uh, what does life look like for you now? Uh, I recently just moved back here from Baltimore, where I also was doing Young Life, Baltimore City. Um, amazing program down there as well. But now I'm here and starting ministry in West Harlem. And we already have ongoing ministry here in Central Harlem. And we actually would love for people to get involved here. Um, and it could be something as simple as showing up um, and maybe with snacks to a campaigners. And a campaigners is basically a safe space for kids who want to know more about Christ to come together, grow together, um, get a deeper understanding, open um, maybe scripture, read together, and even just learn simple things um, in their faith, maybe how to pray, maybe how to express to their friends, all different things like that. Um, and then we're also looking for people who might be able to maybe help us set up or tear down or serve food at our monthly clubs where uh, the whole thing is a party with a purpose. And so it is a time for kids to just be kids, a safe space for kids to listen to music, play games, watch skits, watch people just have the most fun in the world. But then at the end, someone proclaims the gospel and they get to hear something they might have never heard before. And so if you want more info, like Jordan said, we'll be in the back after this. Yes, give it up for Wendell and Pete, y'all. 
the thing that I want you to take away is that the reason we have Hope for New York uh, is because we want to encourage you guys to take uh, a small step in the direction of making sure we're loving people, God's children, God's people well. And you never know how much one small step could take you. Um, I was telling this a little bit last service. Um, uh, years ago when I first met Aswan, probably a couple of weeks after I met him, uh, he called me, and if you know Aswan, this is typical Aswan. He calls me like at eight, like, bro, what you doing? I'm like, nothing. He was like, can Bobby stay at your house tonight? I'm like, first of all, who is Bobby? And second of all, what do you mean, can he stay at my house uh, tonight? And this was before I was married, so I could make decisions for myself at that time. <laughs> and uh, I let Bobby stay at my house that night, and um, later Aswan and I talked about uh, Bobby and his story, and I came to find out that Bobby had a, a rough time growing up, and he shared a little bit of a story last year, uh, here, a couple years ago, so this is not me saying something that he hasn't himself shared. Uh, he grew up in and out of foster care and uh, was in the streets and got arrested for doing some stuff and ended up going to prison. And then when he gets out of prison, he's living on the subway, just uh, doesn't have a place to, to go. And Aswan took him in his house with his wife and his kids and gave Bobby a home. And that, that, blew me, that blew me away. That absolutely blew me away. And I, I let Bobby stay at my house that one night, and then it, instead of being just one night, it was like, oh, he, you can crash here once a week and uh, twice a week. And eventually, um, my wife and I, we were able to get a, a bigger apartment, and we had a spare bedroom, and, we let Bob, and Bobby ended up moving in with us to, to live with us. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> And here's the thing, if you would have asked me four years ago, hey, Jordan, do you think you're going you're gonna to just let some random dude live with you? Absolutely not. That was absolutely not my intention at all. And I, I certainly never saw the path to get there. But Bobby's family, he is a part of our family now. Thank God he did move to Brooklyn. He got his own place. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but he's doing great. He has a phenomenal job, and he's doing really well. Um, but you never know what that one small step that you might take. Maybe it's just in clicking that link from, from Hope for New York. You'll never know what that will do to you uh, in involving you in the lives uh, of other people in meaningful ways to serve people. Uh, and it does something more to you than it even does to them. So, man, let me pray for Wendell and Pete. And right after service, you'll be able to talk to them. Uh, and also, uh, one more organization, No See Harlem. It's our involvement with the school here at PS76. And J.D. Montalvo will be in the back to talk to you guys about that as well. Um, Heavenly Father, I'm just grateful for Wendell's life. I'm grateful for all of the ways that you have arranged for him to be in this place, standing on this stage. Uh, I'm grateful for the ways you've worked in all of our lives God, don't let us step over your image bearers. God, don't let us have a faith, a version of faith that, that stops at what we say and not touches our, our, the way we live our life and the way we spend our money and our time. God, would you encourage us and strengthen us and give us uh, hope that we can, be, we can do something daring with our lives and we can, uh, we can give ourselves to you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.